Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest in this episode is Nevin Raj, co-founder and COO of Grata. Grata is a fascinating data software business that takes in all available public information about private companies, such as their website, LinkedIn, funding data, PPP data, and so much more. It then uses that data to create the most accurate profile of that company and their industry, headcount, business model, revenue range, and more. Nevin and I talk about the categories of data businesses and where he sees data businesses evolving into, how to accurately estimate revenue of private companies and how the best investors do it today, and how to build a data software business. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Jerry Joe from Hood & Strong. Is there a quality of earnings evaluation of the business? So the quality of earnings, or, or Q of E, as we call it, is not evaluation of the business, but it serves as the basis for valuation. Valuation generally is derived from, based on a multiple of earnings, or EBITDA, as we, um, we call it. And it's driven specifically by market dynamics, right? the industry of the business, the size of the business, and also just the, the customer profile, among other things. What the QB does is it provides an, an earning profile about the business, and that you know, typically entails the, the various types of uh, adjustments we make to the, the company's earnings. Naturally, that's oftentimes a, a buy-side analysis uh, that we perform on behalf of the buyers doing the due diligence as we evaluate the business earning profile. But we're also seeing a lot of uh, sellers uh, requesting us to perform this sell-side quality of earnings and for the reason of preparing the business for sale, and that's to anticipate you know, what the buyers will find and, and prevent a- any potential surprises that could lead to renegotiating the valuation of the, the, the value of the business and prevent the deal from falling apart. And ultimately, that facilitates and speed up the closing process. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for supporting the show. And now to the episode. It's good to see you, Nevin. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. There's tons of stuff within data businesses I, I would love to talk about, and there's Obviously, you've done a ton of thinking around data businesses since you run one. I would love to hear kind of your thoughts that on this concept that you brought up a few times, which is kind of data versus workflow and how like a data business, like how the two relate to each other and kind of key differences you've noticed between the two businesses and which, which are kind of most interesting to you. Yeah, Alex, thanks for having me on today. Excited to talk about this because this is definitely a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Having built a company that actually straddles both of these different concepts. And I think it's actually fairly common for data and software businesses to have a mix of both data and workflow. So so we'll talk a little bit about Grata. We'll talk a lot about other case studies, examples of companies that have done this, are doing this, and doing it well. But I want to start off by, by talking about just in general, what makes data so special to create a business around? Because data businesses have not been around as long as other industries. It's actually a fairly new, nascent industry. And there's a reason for this, and part of it has to do with the internet. But what we've seen most recently because of digitization is access to data has increased exponentially. And data is special in the world in that there's a third law of thermodynamics, right, is that entropy is always increasing in the world. And this is almost the same with data. As time goes on, more and more information, more data is created. And that's actually the opposite of, let's say, natural resources, which are constantly being depleted. 
or manufacturing industries where you're, you're building something based on some finite or scarce resource. So with a lot of those industries, you have to be concerned about your supply and your supply chain and the prices of commodities and actually your cost structure going up as time goes on. But what's interesting with data businesses is there's just more information coming into the world. And I've heard this phrase of data is the new oil. And I think that is right in a sense where data is valuable, like oil is valuable, but it's different in that oil is a very scarce resource. And we are moving in a world towards renewable and renewables and different sources of energy. Data is only going to become more and more important as we go on, as time goes on. And there's a famous graphic that I love that it show, it's a bunch of dots on a page and it says, this is data. And in the second frame, it has these colors and the dots, it's blue, it's purple and green. And it says, this is information. And then in the third frame, it connects the dots and it says, this is knowledge. And then in the fourth frame, a few of the dots are lit up and this is insight that you find from the knowledge. And then in the fifth frame, it connects those two lit up dots and says, this is wisdom. And I love that graphic because I think that is really telling of how this industry is maturing and where things are going. You know, you have data, which is that, I think of a data business that collects information and their outputs are data feeds. They're essentially Excel spreadsheets, they're databases. It's very raw, it's unprocessed. It's one level actually below information. And I think about information as that next level above data where you don't just have raw collected pieces of data, but you enrich it with some other knowledge to essentially create some type of information. I think of the third tier, this knowledge and insight component, going back to that famous graphic, this is where we're going to go. So we're going to talk about where we get into workflow and, and really the convergence of SaaS businesses with data businesses. And then finally, that area of wisdom, that's where human judgment comes in. That's where consultants and data analysts and the people layer comes on all this. And we're not going to talk about wisdom so much, but we're going to talk about how data and insight are really flowing together from a business perspective. It seems like some of these, with some of these frames that, that you've mentioned with this graphic, as they get closer to wisdom, currently there's consultants and people doing a lot of the wisdom pieces, but it seems like pretty quickly data businesses are catching up and data businesses initially perhaps were only data information and then there's knowledge. And then as they get smarter and you know, there's more development with those data products, suddenly insight and wisdom are you know, becoming more apparent in some of these. Do you see that development path with data businesses like they get closer to that wisdom category? Yeah, actually, wisdom is another way of saying machine learning. And it's, it's taking what we learn as humans and turning that into an algorithm and institutionalizing that. But what's happening is that type of wisdom that you build with ML or AI actually goes back and fuels insight because then you have people always interpreting that, staying one step ahead of the machines. So I still think that while there is this push towards wisdom, People are always one step ahead. People are always going to interpret and make decisions off the latest information they get that may or may not align with what the system or what the, the advanced data provider in this case tells them. Yeah, in many ways, it kind of relates to our some of our earlier discussions on Bloomberg, where what these media these companies that blend media and data together, they have these this data, these knowledge and insights, and then their reporting and editorial team is the one pulling wisdom out of those insights and writing them up in the form of articles and content and podcasts and what have you. That's a pretty interesting like way to like see like, okay, media data is like some form of taking like blending people and wisdom and data together, but data on its own seems to be quickly approaching that wisdom category too, like you said, with machine learning. Yeah, that's, Bloomberg is a great case study of a business that got really good with pricing data for equities and commodities and all these different securities and brought it into a real-time system. But then what they did was they really facilitated collaboration. And if you talk to most users of Bloomberg, 
they'll rave about Bloomberg chat and how they at a hedge fund can talk to a banker or talk to another fund and actually make a deal. And, and Bloomberg is not set up to be a clearinghouse, but they are helping transactions clear because you can take the information and the knowledge and the insight you get, and then you can make decisions. And that actually forks from wisdom because there's some element of decision-making that a customer makes. But Bloomberg as a business, as you mentioned, has gotten into this, this wisdom pillar through media. And Bloomberg.com, their core landing page, is all about the media and all about the insight that they draw from their data and are sharing and interpreting with the world. What's actually, we've actually seen this happen even outside of Bloomberg and other businesses, CB Insights, where they started off initially collecting funding data and getting better information on VC funding. And then they started actually started marketing this really well with these market maps and a daily newsletter. People would read the newsletter, see the market maps and say, oh, this is really interesting. And they were using that to draw users in to subscribe to their software. What they found out was that the market maps and the research alone are also valuable. And they created a pricing tier where companies are paying six figures and above for that research, for the, the wisdom that their team can provide that sits on top of the data, the information, the insight, and the knowledge that they provide. And I think that's like a great example of a more modern happened in the last five to 10 years of a company that's gone through that transformation. Yeah, it kind of, it reminds me of Politico Pro. I don't know if you've followed that company or that team, but they have a similar content in-depth reporting and data product for politics. So they'll have data on different races or the progress of different bills. And they have all this data or like funding data as well, but then they have a really in-depth reporting team that covers it all and sends out daily newsletters or there's even alerts. So if you want you know, any alert for any news for one particular person or, or bill or what have you, you can sign up for those as well. And so it's kind of a, it's a similarly priced product too as, as something like Bloomberg, which is pretty fascinating to me where it's not just data or it's not just raw numbers anymore, but there is a strong insight element to, to Politico. Yeah, and I, I'm not familiar with the specific business of Politico, but a couple of my classmates started a company called Quorum based in DC. That sounds pretty similar. Basically what they do is they collect data about legislations, about what's happening in, in Washington, and they sell that information to investor relations departments and and lobbying departments of large companies what they've really created again back to data versus workflow they've created a way to manage your political communication so it's not so much they're not so much the value they're not providing is the raw data it is i get all this information about what bills are passing in dc how this relates to my business. So let's say you have a, a climate bill passed. It's related to emissions. Your GM or your Ford, you need to know about this. How that, how's this going to affect your production of cars and your stance on electric vehicles? That's really important for you. That's, what, that's the value that I've seen that Quorum brings to the market. Again, transcending data and moving to helping someone get a job done. Would you walk us through the different types of data businesses you've You've talked about kind of there's obviously like public or non-public data businesses. Would you say those are the two main types of data businesses or are there perhaps one or two that I'm missing as well? Yeah, I, I think that's the general structure and that's right. I, the first thing I want to talk about is when talking about data, the buzzword that people use is proprietary. I want proprietary data. It's data that no one has. It's super secret. All data to some extent is proprietary, whether it comes from the public or the private domain. It's proprietary. The more proprietary you are, really just depends on how much you synthesize that data. Again, coming back to our framework of data, information, knowledge, and insight, the more you can bring that data into information and knowledge and insight, the more value you add. So just caveat that of what is proprietary. Proprietary can still mean public data. So therefore, I break this down versus where does the data come from? There's not public or, or private, and then there's publicly available data. And let's start with that first bucket of not public data. There, I think there are a couple of, actually three sub-segments within this. The first one 
that we've seen is data that comes from a network. And this is where you, you make sense of someone else's data. The best example of a business in this space is Nielsen. Nielsen has multiple businesses, but let's take their consumer retail business. They buy in-store retail data, and they buy this from all the major retailers. I think it's like Target and Walmart and you, know, you, you name it, Macy's, JCPenney, whoever, they, they buy this data. And what they do is they look at the flow and the sale of products in stores. And IRI actually does this as well. And the way that business works is they actually get flash drives and Excel files, and they used to get mail to them from the retailers. They compile it, they look at the data, and then they send back to their contributors kind of anonymized data of how they're performing relative to their peers. They pay them, they provide them with anonymized data for being part of the network, and they take all the data from all the contributors of the network, and they sell it back to people like investors and other people and, and brands who want to know how their products are performing on these shelves relative to other products and relative to other retailers. And that's a great example of a, a network-based business where that data is not public, it's proprietary, but really what is proprietary about Nielsen is the relationships they've made and how they make sense of all the information they get. Another business that's done this is Verisk Analytics. They are a contributory network for insurance data and they sell to insurance insurers to help them underwrite risk and help them with their actuarial models. And again, they've built a really great contributory network just in a different space. So that's, that's data business type one is contributory network based. The second one is a license or partnership model. This is where you don't own the data, but you go to someone who has the data and you buy it from them. Or you say, I'm going to give you a rep share. I'm going to give you 10%, 20% of my sales. And this is a, a business that sits again in the value chain in that second level. And one example would be second measure. They go to credit card authorizers and banks and they buy credit card transaction data. And they're actually owned by Bloomberg now, but they buy that data. They have to clean it. There's a ton of cleaning involved. It's very messy. They have to match it to vendors. It's a very, very hard problem. And what they do is they ultimately provide insights into where consumers are spending the products, the categories. And this is beyond Niel you know, Nielsen. It's just in-store. Credit cards can be in-store. It can be restaurant. It can be e-commerce, online, DTC. And, and that's really powerful, but they've taken a different model. It's, it's not so much a network where they come in and anonymize it and sell reports back. It is really purely, we buy the data, we license it, and then we make sense of it. The third type of data business that sits in this not public category, where their information isn't accessible to the public, is I call it organic, where they're actually the creators of the data. And they use that to provide insights across the value chain and workflows across the value chain. A great example of this type of business is Facebook. Facebook collects tons of data on what people like, what people interact with, what they're talking about in posts and in messages. They're a data business at the heart because what the, what 99% of people don't see, we all see a Facebook profile and an Instagram feed. What we don't see is the admin portal behind it, the advertiser portal, where they help marketers go in and place ads and target the people and the demographics that they want to, and really the behavioral segments that they want to get in front of. And that's, it's a huge part of, of Facebook that most people don't see, which I find really interesting. But what they do is they collect, they organize, and they, they distill this information to help you, again, get something done. In this case, help the marketer reach an audience. It's actually the same thing for Yelp. So Yelp has a public-facing platform. You go on to Yelp, read about a restaurant, write a review. What The way they actually make money is they take that information and they sell it back to the businesses. A business can claim, claim their profile. And what they can do is they can advertise on profiles that people are viewing 
similar to theirs, meaning if a person goes on profile one and then jumps to profile two, Yelp tracks that and they say, your profile, these are your competitors, here are the alternatives to you. So it may not be an Italian restaurant competing with another Italian restaurant, maybe Italian restaurant competing with a sushi restaurant because they're close by and they're in the same price range or people are looking at them similarly. And Yelp says, here are the businesses and alternatives to you. You can advertise on their pages and you can pay for insights for how many views you're getting, how many impressions you're getting. And they've, again, turned what looks like to us a consumer-facing business into an advertising business and a workflow for marketers who are trying to reach an audience. So just to recap, we have our, there's public versus private data. Within private data, we have network-based, license-based, and organic. Now, the second segment, this is where the data is publicly available. And I, again, I repeat this point of, it doesn't mean this isn't proprietary. A lot of this actually, and most of this is proprietary, it just comes from a different source. It may come from the internet, it may come from government sources. This information is still often hard to get. It's hard to collect. It's hard to organize and it's hard to distill. One of the biggest examples of public data is S&P. S&P has many, many different products, but their capital IQ product is really taking and organizing SEC filings, 10Ks, 10Qs, annual reports, and helping spread comps, which used to be done manually. It used to take the tables from a PDF of a 10K and put it into a spreadsheet and spread all the financials. This was banking 10 years ago. They totally automated that. And there have been other new age companies like AlphaSense and Centio and BAMSEC. A couple of them have been acquired since that have actually done this in the modern way and found new insights and used machine learning and AI to not only extract data, but make these filings searchable and make in unstructured information found more easily. But again, public information, anyone can go to Edgar and find it. It's just really hard to make sense of it. And again, when I come back to another example of Grata and my company, we make sense of company websites. And yeah, can anyone go to a website? Sure, they're publicly available. But can you make sense of 100 million web pages and distill that down to 10 million companies and what they do and how they do it, who they do it for? That's really hard. And that's where data businesses have a leg up and where their proprietary nature comes in. It's how they interpret what is available to then ultimately power a job to be done and a workflow, which is the second part of what I want to talk about today. Yeah. So would you, would it be fair to describe Grata as a workflow product then? And then diving into that, how would you describe a workflow company? Yeah, actually, that's what, when I talk to our customers and prospects, I tell them, yep, there, there's data in Grata that's underlying what we do, but we are a workflow software. We help you get a job done. And that job for Grata is we help investors, investment bankers, corporate development teams source their next deal. We help them find companies that they want to engage with, whether that's for an acquisition or a capital raise, we're helping you find good companies. And to find good companies, there's data. You need to have companies of a certain size and growth and value and ownership structure. And there's all this information you need to know about the company, what it does, what industry it's in. But ultimately, you're, you're searching for companies, you're collecting and processing information, and then you're running a process. You need to reach out to a CEO. You need to take notes on the company, label the company. You need to manage a funnel and a pipeline. And that is more than just data. It's process. And if you just have data, what happens is that you lose your power in the value chain. So businesses that have stayed data and just, just done data, and I give you big examples. I told you Bloomberg and S&P and Facebook and Yelp. You've heard of all these businesses because they have transcended just the data and they've gone to helping people get a job done or helping people get and businesses get some type of value, which is why our belief at Grata is the data is great, but the data is nothing if you can't use it to get something done. I like that framework. So within the, the Grata business, so you walk through the different ways that Grata gets information on private companies. We've we've talked about stuff like 
you've, you mentioned their website and perhaps LinkedIn and some other maybe public sources or PPP data that's available, but where are you pulling from for gathering this private data? Yeah, for us at Grata, we start with a company's website. We look at the universe of all websites, it's actually very similar to Google. When a website is registered, it comes online, comes through Grata's system, and then we crawl it. And we have machine learning that reads it and interprets it and tries to figure out, is this a business? If so, what type of business is it? What's the sector? What's the business model? Who do they sell to? And then we do something called indexing, which is making it discoverable. Because our goal, our vision, is to make companies more discoverable to the investment and financial community to allow for better flow of capital. There's $14 trillion of boomer capital that's going to turn over in the next 10 to 15 years. There's $4 trillion of dry powder and private capital that's trying to invest in these businesses. So there's clearly a market here to be made. And our goal is to make these companies more discoverable. So what we do is we take this public data, these websites, process them, index it, make companies discoverable. And that's the core. But there's a lot of other ways that we get information and data. And when I explain to you the different types of data I talked about, private versus public, network, license, organic. Usually it's not cut and dry. So what happens is the data business will start in one spot and then they'll expand to different types of data and actually have a more diversified strategy. So while we started Grata with all publicly available data from a company's website, we then moved into licensed and partnered data where we built relationships. An example is we have funding data and startup data that comes from Crunchbase. We have a partnership and a license with. We work with SimilarWeb to get web traffic data. There are a lot of other companies that have these similar partnerships. So those are just two examples of ways that we found insight from an existing data vendor, an existing peer. And we're using that data in a different way to power our workflows. But we do, but it is a mix between what's publicly available and what's not. We're getting into other sources of data, for example, organic from all the data that we have and that our users, we have, a, for example, we have a revenue estimate feature in Grata. And we have a button you can click to, to say it's too high or too low or it's, it looks about right. And that is information that we use to collect to train our models to get smarter. And that's getting into contributory and data that the user provides us for us to get smarter and for them to get a better experience. So even we at Grata are evolving our model of data as we think about diversifying our strategy, but also ultimately just providing more value to our users. So I'd be curious, what are some of the most correlating data sets that you have on private companies that correlate most strongly to revenue size? Yeah, we've done a lot of research on this topic and it's, it's, it could be its own entire hour of conversation. The leading indicator that's used right now in the market is headcount. And you can go back and you can distill almost any business. There are a couple of exceptions, but you can distill almost any business down to how many people they have, which is relevant to their scale. And the reason for that, and there's, there are different scale factors. And we've tried looking at locations. We've looked at web traffic. We've looked at funding. They all... They all play a role in how you calibrate this, but by but by far the strongest one that everything is correlated with is headcount. And take let's just take like a manufacturing business that doesn't need as many people. What matters is the size of their facility. That's what that's the driver of their revenue. If you have a bigger facility, you can produce more, you can get more revenue. Versus let's say a professional services business where like a law firm you're billing by the hours for lawyers. So your revenue is can only be proportional to how many lawyers you have. If you look at the headcount, and that, so that one's obvious, if you look at the headcount of a manufacturing business, the bigger the facility, you're gonna need more staff. You need more maintenance people. You need a site manager. You need all this different staff to operate and make sure the facility is working well. And that scales, it scales differently than the professional services business, which is more one-to-one -one with revenue, but it's still going to scale. And so therefore, if you can get the scale factors right, if you can break down the economy into the 
thousand different subsectors that each have a different scaling factor, and then scale your revenue based on those subsectors, then what you get is a really nuanced and usually highly accurate way of assessing a company outside in. Obviously, Grata is, ta- is taking in a whole bunch of different data sets. How, how do the leading investors that you've studied or worked with, how, how have they historically or currently act, like estimated the size of a company? Yeah, well, it's, it's not rocket science. I think everyone does it pretty similarly is they look at the headcount and they apply multiple. And it's the way this industry has been trained to work on multiples. It's how we value this. So as we look at revenue, we look at EBITDA and we say, this is a 4X, a 8X, a 10X, a 20X, depending on the scale of the business, the growth, the margins, the customer concentration, the defensibility, valuation as an art. But because everyone's used to valuation and multiples, that's the same way they size a business outside in. So a typical investor will take the headcount and say, hey, we know this this type of company roughly has $150,000 per employee or makes $250,000 per employee, and they just apply a flat multiple. The other way they do it is they'll say, and this only works for venture or PE-backed companies, they'll say this company has taken in $100 million of funding, let's just say. And we know that in this round, they give up X percent. So it's a series B, they're going to give up 10% of the company. So it's worth roughly a billion dollars. And we know to be worth a billion dollars, you need to have 50 to 100 million of revenue. Or they'll look at the growth rate and say, okay, based on this like fast growing company, maybe they could get a billion dollar valuation with 20 to 50 million of revenue. Or, hey, it's not growing as fast. They look more stable. Maybe they have 100 to 200 million of revenue. Or maybe it's the it's a consumer business with so their lower margins. So we think they have 100 million of of gross margins, which is going to trade at like a 10x. And that's the math they do. So they kind of take what they can observe, whether it's employees on a like a LinkedIn is probably the most observable for an investor and funding, which is going to be in on a TechCrunch article or in the Wall Street Journal or on a pitch book profile. And they, they use that to back into it. It sounds like some of that estimating is based on past experience of those investors or intuition how much of that do you use at Grata or do you or do you try to stick to measurable data as much as possible and and kind of try to try to set aside intuition as much as possible? How do you kind of balance the two? Yeah, you kind of have to take intuition as the input to machine learning. When you're training a model, you're getting it to behave like a human would. So take, for example, a really challenging problem that we try to solve is how do you classify businesses, specifically software businesses, which are really complex. Is data software? Is data a service? Is blockchain software? There are these nebulous fields that transcend different traditional industries. And, And our view on this is you get the models to believe and to act like the intuition of the people and the people who are your customers, because your customers are going to believe and act in a certain way. And and especially if you have a concentrated market and you have product market fit in a particular use case, it's easier to train the models to work in a way that's relatable to your end customers. Because our end customers will generally say, data businesses and blockchain businesses fit in the software bucket. But you could have other industries that say, no, that's actually not the way, not what we believe. So we've trained our machine learning models to match the expectations of our customers. Now, is that a self-fulfilling prophecy in some way? Do you limit insight? You can argue around that. There's, I've seen both sides of the coin with that. But ultimately, it comes back to this theme here of data versus workflow. And our users are trying to get a job done. They're trying to find companies to invest in or acquire. And if they have a certain way of believing in it, a certain way of assessing companies, if we lead them down a different path, unless that path is more right and we can prove that with evidence and sources and methodology to build trust, they're going to just go back to their old way. And if they have to unwind what we've done to go back to their old way, it adds time. So a lot of this is meeting your user where they are and then inching them along that journey to get them to a more right or a more sophisticated answer. And we think a lot about that when we think about intuition and machine learning and how those relate to the products that we produce. 
And how do you support that workflow? So how do you take the data that Grata has and integrate it with other tools and software and workflows that your your clients have? Is that through like APIs or some software connection, something else that's that's going on there? The core of what we do is we have a SaaS application. It's a cloud-based, web-based application you can log into. And that application has different entry points and different connectors, so to speak. And the common user will come in and just run queries and find companies, research companies. But we've created a suite of other ways to enter the Grata universe, so to speak. And one way, and what's really common, is we have a Chrome extension. And this is getting in your browser. So you see Grata when you're on a website. You can see all the information that Grata has on that website. And you click a button, you can jump right into Grata. The other, and this is where a lot of other companies that have done this and, and do this, where they have Chrome extensions. So it's, it's quite a common way to get someone back into your platform and to add value at the point of their workflow. The other thing we do is we realize that there are a lot of other tools that people use, and you have to play well and integrate with other ones in the ecosystem. So we built integrations with some of the key players in our space, like Salesforce, DealCloud, HubSpot, coming up as Affinity. These are the CRMs that investors use. And they are storing different information while they're using Grata for their top of funnel company searching and deal sourcing. They're using these CRMs to manage relationships, manage middle office, back office functions, multiple sources of deal flow. So to make their lives easier, we have to be integrated with the CRM. The other way is that we see people consume our information and consume our product is through APIs, where we release our capabilities. We have a search API. We have a a similar company search API, where if you're building an application in-house, most of our users who do this are building a proprietary in-house tool. They may not be able to use their UI if they're building their own UI that's custom to their organization. And so they want to use our capabilities and they'll use our API and call our system and provide back not necessarily the data, but the search functionality that we provide in our UI. That, that's another, again, route to market that data businesses have taken. It's SaaS, it's API. And then the other route, and this is in the raw sense, is a data feed or what we call a flat file, where we just provide, it's almost like if you hit export. In Grata, every day, you get your flat file back with all your data fields, it's rows and columns. It's not a multi-dimensional structure. It's a two-dimensional structure. We provide that too for the ones who really want to come back and consume data. And going back to our framework of data, information, knowledge, insight, wisdom, our flat file is our data. Our API is our knowledge. And the platform and the UI gets you up to insight. And we let people engage in different parts of the value chain or different parts of the data stack. There's this article written by Abraham Thomas that talks about the economics of data businesses. And one of the things he talks about is that data businesses typically have slow beginnings where it kind of takes a while to get your data and products set up and and various other things. But over time, they tend to accelerate in terms of growth and adoption. I would love to hear kind of what's the, what were the early days of Grata like and how has that growth path been for Grata since founding? Yeah, I, I think I've, I've gone back and forth about the need for critical mass and how things get started. And the slower path is you go out and you collect a lot of data. You, As I mentioned, you build partnerships and licenses. Or organically, you collect a lot of information. Or you make sense, you build a network. It's going to convince a bunch of people to come in and contribute data, all that takes time. So a lot of big data businesses you've heard of, like Verisk and Nielsen and Bloomberg and S&P and others have all taken, they've gone through, they're huge now, but they've taken a long path to get there. The way the modern data business has short-circuited this, and, and same thing with, with Grata, is because there's so much available out there, the amount of information, we talk about information entropies increase so much, is you can pick a starting point with more than enough public information. And that's where we started. We said, there are hundreds of, there are billions of websites. If we just figure out the 100 million sites that matter, the 10 million that are companies, we can pretty quickly, within a year, 
ramp up, build the scale, and build the automation to make value and make sense of this. And that's where we started. So we picked an untapped potential. It's sitting right in front of our eyes of information to then build a business on and then have expanded to other components of licensed data, organic data that we create, contributory data that we receive. We essentially broke what I call the chicken egg problem with that public data and grew the business quite rapidly. Um, Andrew and I ran a separate, like a, a bootstrap data business that we called Grata Data for four years, but Grata as it is today is a SaaS business. You know, it, it took us less than a year. It was like late December 2019 to about November 2019 to really, or no, November 2020, sorry, to build up the the critical mass that we needed. We were actually selling subscriptions as early as January, February of 2020 without even having crawled every website. I think we had, we had like a million companies at the time or a couple hundred thousand companies, but people still found that valuable because it was more than nothing. And it was allowing them to at least discover a universe that was bounded, but still a universe they didn't have access to. So for us, it, just, it happened very rapidly because we, we took a source that was out there, made sense of it, and then other parts, other different data collection mechanisms are going to take us longer because they just come like a network, just comes with more usage and more people in your community. Yeah, so what are those second level data sets that over time you hope to add to Grata to kind of entrench and build your moat around your data business then? We think a lot about how you gauge a company size. And we spent a lot of time around more data that'll help drive a better revenue estimate. And right now we're working on data around government data sources, PPP, others that again are public, but they're really hard to make sense of. And no one's really done a good job of connecting this and making sense of this information. And we're starting there because it gives us a point where it's, it's free, it's public, it's out there. And there are other niche industry-specific data sets we're thinking about to help us with size, like claims data for the healthcare industry or credit card data, transaction data for the consumer industry, which is more of an industry-specific approach. So that's one bucket. It's all about how do you gauge the size of a company. Another place that we're thinking a lot about is how do you value a company? What's the price? Because we're a deal sourcing platform. You need to know how much you need to pay for a company. What's the value of that business? How much should you pay for it? What are the multiples out there? Again, this is it's public data that's made sense of because you can go out and get public company multiples, but you need to know what are the right multiples to use, what's the context, how to adjust them. And that's all the other information we have that really provides value and sets the context on that. We're thinking a lot about that. The other place that we think a lot about and what's next for us is related to user-generated data for the user itself. So a user comes into Grata, uh, we're building a feature on labels where a user can tell Grata whether a company's high priority, low priority, or, or medium or low priority. And we're going to use that to give that user a better experience. You're telling us you like these companies and you don't like these companies. We're going to start surfacing more companies like the ones that you like more companies that make it through your pipeline. You'll be able to submit a status to Grata to say, this company is, we've done a deal with this company or we're in active conversations. And so having that information, it's kind of like a dating app. You say, I like, or I don't like this person. And the app gives you recommendations. That's kind of like the vision for Grata of, let's go up the chain, the value chain, and not just give you information, but let's give you insight and let's get you closer towards wisdom where you're telling us what you like, just like in Facebook. You do you like posts and you say what your preferences are. We add that. Your, our users are starting to give that to us, especially with some of these new features. So we want to provide them with a better, more curated, more personalized experience in the application. You've talked about data businesses and workflow businesses and how workflow businesses will take a raw data set but then make it usable through dashboards and integrations and other other stuff. Do you think eventually most data businesses will become workflow businesses and the two kind of basic ideas or basic concepts will merge together in some way? Yeah, you know, I think about this as a value chain and the analogy is in manufacturing. You have raw materials companies, you have manufacturers of building materials and building products, you have the ones that make the end consumer products, you have the 
distributors, the retailers, this industry is going to look very, very similar in the next decade. And there will always be specialists along the way. But the most valuable companies where the industry is going is towards a more integrated view. And I still, I love the example of Yelp. I love Foursquare is another example. You know, if you get people, if you provide some value, you give people a place to find great restaurants and businesses and review them and and you're going to get interactions, you will always create data. Information entropy is always increasing in the world. So anyone that creates a great product or a great service can and will collect information. And if you do that in a tech-enabled way and you have the infrastructure to capture that, then you will create data and you will be able to monetize that data, whether that's selling the data raw or selling around workflows. That is always happening. And, and the biggest and the best companies have been thinking about this. They know this is changing. And you know, I worked at McKinsey for several years and I worked on the tech team and we saw a lot of our clients asking about how do we make sense of data? How do we turn this from a, a cost center to a revenue center? That was nine years ago, seven years ago. A lot of that's happening, but it's also happening on the way up the chain. A lot of the data businesses, the data startups um, that I see and that we talk to, more and more so is saying we're creating dashboards around our data. That's like the first place to start. Dashboards and ways to view this. Oh, now we're creating tools to help you get whatever job done, whether that's make a decision or place an ad or do some type of but I like the jobs to be done framework, you're seeing data businesses move up the stack too. So I think it's natural. It's the way you capture share once you do something well. I think it's the future of this industry and there will be some specialists. The most valuable companies will be generalists. But generally, I'm a believer in, in the convergence of these two. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? When we first started Grata, I would always come up to Andrew and say, Andrew, we need to have some asset. Like we need to collect something that's quote unquote proprietary. No one needs to have it. That's what we need to sell. And the belief that really changed my mind was that you don't actually need something secret or private or quote unquote what the industry is called proprietary to provide value. You just need to organize, collect, organize, and distill information for people to help them get a job done. Whether that's if you literally physically go to your government, your local government offices and collect paper that they have filings and make that digital and it helps someone solve the problem of permitting or construction, you're adding value. And, and that's the same thing in our world. There, there are many, many analogies of this, but I always thought, oh, you need something secret. No one can have access to it. It has to be totally proprietary. And I realized very quickly that's actually not true. Um, so that, that's probably one belief that I, it's very relevant to, to Grata, but a belief that I had that has changed. I think the industry has also come to realize that as well, because it's so hard to make sense of what's out there. There's a lot of information out there. So the industry has realized it's not about the information, but it's about how you make sense of it. Do you think that makes data businesses less defensible over time if the data is not necessarily the proprietary source of value for that company? If if it's analysis over time, don't w- would you think that that given a five-year time horizon, that would be easier for a competitor to replicate versus some data set that that competitor might not ever be able to have access to? Just as easy or hard as it, as it is to make shoes. Like everyone, anyone can go out and go to a rubber company and buy the soles and then manufacture get the fabric and make the shoe. But why are there only a handful of really good shoe companies? It's hard. Like there's a whole value chain to make sense of the raw materials to make the end good. So while it's out there and we think it's easy because we can access it from our computer on the internet, it's really hard to make sense of it and to create insights. So I think, yes, to some extent, it is accessible. But I don't, like I said, I don't think this industry will look any different than manufacturing, for example. Didn't think we'd be comparing data businesses to shoe businesses, but I love that analogy. What's the best business you've ever seen? One business we really admire is Zoom Info. And they're kind of tangential in our space. They have taken something that's really hard to do, which is collecting contact information on people. And they did it in a multifaceted way. They got public data, they licensed data, they created a really powerful contributory network. And they did that really well. 
And their tagline used to be on their website, hit your number. That was their, their slogan or their tagline. Now it's all about go to market. And what's really interesting is they've evolved as a company realizing it's not just about getting data on contacts to increase your sales, but it's about how do you bring a product or service to market? And they've made acquisitions. They acquired a chorus AI for sales intelligence. They've acquired many, many different types of companies to help them expand across the value chain. And that business took a long time to build. I think they did a great job of starting off with a data source, expanding the ways they got data, and then now expanding the problems that they solve to be the salesperson or the marketer's end-to-end solution for going to market. I think it's, it's a pretty cool thing that they've done. And of course, it's gained a lot of value. At one point, they were they had the highest multiple a revenue multiple in the industry. I know markets have corrected now a little bit, um, but it, it just shows in their valuation of how the investors and market values that business. Are there any particular insights that you've gathered, you've gleaned from studying ZoomInfo that you're starting to apply with Grata or want to apply at some point? Yeah, it's that, it's that data diversification of start off with one type of data source and move in and diversify and use that to add value to your users. And, and that's what ultimately not just builds a moat, but also creates more and more value. And, and we really believe in the community element of Grata. And we think of our, our space is big, but tight knit. People know each other. People switch jobs every couple of years and go to a, a competing or neighboring firm. And that means that there is value in that community. And I think ZoomInfo did a great, has done a great job of their building value in the sales community. And, and I hope we follow a similar path as we figure out ways to engage that community. And same thing with, with Bloomberg. They've had a great way of engaging their community through the Bloomberg chat. Not saying that Grotto will have an, an in-app chat per se, but the theme of, of community is really important to us, whether that's with our own company and our own employees or engaging our customers, our prospects, anyone in our universe. Yeah, that's I'd love to see a chat feature at some point. That'd be actually a pretty cool feature. Thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit. I'm excited to see what you guys build in with Grata and what it eventually becomes. So thanks for sharing a little bit today. I appreciate it. Yeah, Alex, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put In Strong, Overly Risk Strategies, More Staffing, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.